I'd like to invite Debbie Johnson and uh, Bob Lang to join the pastoral team for a moment this morning. This is a bittersweet weekend. Debbie has tissue. Is that for me? Because I already found myself quaking a little bit. Uh, More sweet than bitter. Uh, Bob and Debbie are getting married tomorrow. That is sweet. Um, uh, However, Debbie is moving to be a missionary in Boise, Idaho, which is bitter. Uh, Debbie Johnson, for those of you who do not know, her family moved here in 1979. She has made an impress on this community for a third of a century. (laughs) I dare say there is no corner of this valley, no institution, that has not been blessed through the sweet ministry of this woman. And for the past 16 years, she has been in charge of this congregation. Uh, Uh, That that means I'm the boss. Yeah, she... I won't go down that road. (laughs) As office manager and as den mother, she has owned this place. She has shaped it. This church is a better congregation for the ordained ministry of this woman. And we will miss her terribly, um, not only around the office um, and her ability to, the way she swears at technology is one of my favorites. She, she uses the word naughty. She says, stop being naughty. She talks to her computer and... Uh, it's not mine anymore, so... Um, we're going to miss her uh, terribly. So um, it's appropriate to mark this moment. Debbie, I don't know if you wish to say a few things. We had this discussion weeks ago about whether she was going. I asked her to preach this week, actually, and she declined. Um, Can't preach. Okay. Can they hear me? Yes. Yeah, we have a. Oh. It's been a joy. It's been crazy. It's been precious to be part of this family. And I, I love you all. And thank you for loving me and my family right back. Uh, the dean of the pastoral staff is Henning Guldhammer, and he's going to pray a prayer of blessing on the two of you today. God, we thank you for Debbie and her sojourn in our midst, her years with us. We thank you for the gifts that you've given her. Yes, uh, all the good gifts of a manager, to be sure, but we thank you for the gift of her spirit, for making her work more than managing an office, but for making her role a ministry 
in our midst. Lord, we also thank you for taking a dark time in her life and turning it toward light and joy. As Debbie and Bob join lives together tomorrow, we ask that you lead them, that you bless them and keep them, make your face shine upon them, and give them joy. In the name of Jesus, amen. Um, in addition, there will be a reception after the worship service out here uh, in front of the church and a book that you have opportunity to sign to leave a note uh, for Debbie. Um, we're going to miss you, but we're going to celebrate tomorrow. Indeed. Thank you. If you eat at a new restaurant in Portland and someone asks you about it, how was the food, the service, the ambiance? And your reply, eh, take it or leave it. What do you mean? If you attend a sporting event in Seattle, a concert in Spokane, or you hear a new idea at a meeting at work and someone asks you about the subject and your response, eh, take it or leave it, what do you mean? Well, you mean precisely that. I could take it or I could leave it. I'm not hot about it. I'm not cold for it. I really don't care. A bit of a dispassionate response. When I'm talking with a high school student, a college student, a recent graduate, a young adult, an adult of any age, and the subject is the church, and the person says, oh, I want it. I want to take it. I am fired up about the church. Well, that fires me up too. When someone says, oh, I'm through with the church. I want to leave it. I'm angry. I'm frustrated. The church just upsets me. Well, I don't really want to hear that response. I'm not happy to hear it. But at least it tells me that somebody still cares about the church, for you cannot be angry with, disappointed in, someone or something that you don't care about. But when someone says of the church, and I speak now particularly of students and young adults, eh, take it or leave it, I am deeply troubled. For that indicates that a person has sized up the church and come to the conclusion, it doesn't really matter. I've got no beef with the church. I'm not that angry, but I'm not particularly enthusiastic. Nah, take it or leave it. I'm troubled also by this response. 
because it suggests that the church in contemporary times has not forced the issue. It is interesting in the first century when we read about that first church, the movement of Jesus, very few people have a take-it-or-leave-it attitude. Yes, there are many who hate the church. They fight against it. They want nothing to do with it. But then there are many who find themselves captured by its beauty, fired up about the church, wanting to give their lives to it. The first century church seems to have the impact of polarization. It drives people either away or draws them toward, but not much dispassionate, eh, take it or leave it. So how is it that the church of our day, it seems to me, has created an environment that makes it so easy, particularly for young generations, to say, ah, the church is fine. I might, I might not. No big deal. To this 21st century dilemma, I think we could ask a question of the first century, and here goes. When someone in the first century decided to join the Christian movement, what exactly did they think they were signing up for? What did a first-century man, a young Samaritan family, an older Grecian woman, a blue-collar Roman couple, a wealthy Asian household, or an African politician like the Ethiopian eunuch expect when they joined the way? What did an outsider expect that they were becoming a part of? And here I mean not necessarily a discovery that Jesus is the prophet foretold in the Jewish scriptures, and neither a sense that the afterlife can be quite good. But rather, what did people expect that they would experience by joining the church in the present moment? This summer, I've been pouring myself through the first bits of literature that we have contained in the New Testament in search of an answer. I think that they were signing up in those first days for at least three identities, three identities. Identity number one, they were signing up to be members. There was this sense that they were becoming a part of family, members of a family, that they were going to experience rich, authentic community, that they were going to be and we read this over a hundred times in the New Testament, this moniker, they were going to become brothers and sisters. Deep, rich community. Let me give you a bit of a sampling with several texts from those first letters that were moving about the various congregations. All the brothers and sisters here send you greetings Greet one another with a holy kiss. Peace to the brothers and sisters and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. 
This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. I appeal to you, dear brothers and sisters, by the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ, to live in harmony with each other. Let there be no divisions in the church. Rather, be of one mind, united in thought and purpose. And now I make one more appeal, my dear brothers and sisters. Watch out for people who cause divisions. And the book of Acts says they all met together and were constantly united in prayer. And all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity. And then you have those some five dozen one another statements in the New Testament. A sampling, be at peace with one another. Wash one another's feet. Love one another. Be devoted to one another. Honor one another. Carry each other's burdens. Admonish one another. Spur one another on. Do not slander one another. Greet one another with a holy kiss of love. The expectation of men and women, boys and girls, joining that first church, we are going to be members of a family that loves each other deeply. We are going to serve each other. We're going to challenge each other. We are going to forgive one another and support one another. Deep, authentic community. I was away from church on Sabbath, June 20 this year at the Upper Columbia Conference camp meeting. And I received one of the encouragement cards that you see in front of you in the pew, somebody who evidently missed my presence, acknowledged my absence. And I received this card with great joy and turned it over to read to Daddy. <laughs> I love you. Come try to take this away from me. Oh. That's church. I missed you. You weren't here. You're part of this family. Oh, I think that the reason first that people did not have a take it or leave it attitude about the church is that they knew they were a part of a community that cared for one another. And so I wonder, do we experience that? Do our young people experience rich, authentic community in our midst? It breaks my heart when I hear about a student leaving this place and going to a congregation, and they don't feel a sense of family and connectedness. In fact, I hear things sometimes like, well, I had this innovative idea, but they said, we don't do innovation. I wanted to redesign this part of the church, but they said, we don't do redesign. I had this new way of doing ministry, but they said, yeah, we don't change anything around here. I didn't feel like I was a part. You know, I wonder if there's a difference, friends, between allowing our young people to feel like guests 
and allowing our young people to feel like family. And there's a difference. With our own children, Nicole and I, we do not wish for them to feel like welcome guests in our home, do we? No, we want them to be family, and there's a difference. It's one thing to say to the next generation, of course you're welcome here. We want all the young people we can possibly get, but <laughs> don't change anything. No innovation, no creativity. You just do it the way we've always been doing it, but you're welcome here. It seems to me that those in the first century when they joined the church, understood that they were not guests of a pre-existing family, but they were in fact joining the family in full participation. They had a sense that they were being loved and they could love, serve, served and they could serve, that they were all in on this new family. Take it or leave it, I suspect first of all, we can fight against this prevailing attitude by being a rich community of familial oneness. A second identity we read about in those early texts, a priest. It seems that when someone was baptized in the first century, they understood that they were becoming a pastor, a minister, an active priest doing good work in the world. There wasn't the sense that there was clergy and then everybody else, a priest and then everybody else. Every man, every woman, every boy and girl that joined the church understood that they could actively be a participant and make a difference in the world in a meaningful way. Back to the text, 1 Peter 2. As you come to him, that is, as you're joining the family of God, coming to the church of Jesus, as you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to Him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. Here we have a reference to the temple which houses the very presence of God. To be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. When someone joined the church, they were, at that moment, signing up for the priesthood. They weren't just an average member. They were a man, a woman, someone who was actively engaged in real ministry. Paul reinforces this in his letter to the Romans. In His grace, God has given us different gifts for doing certain things well. So if God has given you the ability to prophesy, speak out with as much faith as God has given you. If your gift is serving others, serve them well. If you're a teacher, teach well. If your gift is to encourage others, be encouraging. If it is giving, give generously. If God has given you leadership ability, take the responsibility seriously. And if you have a gift for showing kindness to others, do it gladly. Paul says every single person has been gifted, has been ordained to do meaningful and significant ministry in the world. But evidently, even in those first years, there existed contention. And folks were saying, well, these gifts and roles are more important than these over there. And Paul, as he can do so well, 
labors at length, using the metaphor of body to make sure that everyone understands that there aren't a few up here and everybody else down here. In his letter to the church at Corinth, yes, the body has many different parts, not just one part. If the foot says I'm not part of the body because I'm not a hand, that does not make it any less part of the body. And if the ear says I'm not part of the body because I'm not an eye, would that make it any less part of the body? If the whole body were an eye, how would you hear? If the whole body were an ear, how would you smell anything? But our bodies have many parts, and God has put each part just where he wants it. How strange a body would be if it only had one part. Yes, there are many parts, but only one body. The eye can never say to the hand, I don't need you. The head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. All of you together are Christ's body, and each of you is a part of it. Paul wants the church to be clear. Every single one of you is a priest. Every single one of us in this room is gifted by the Spirit. And every one of those gifts in the body is equally called, is to be equally treasured, every single person ordained. Now, before we continue to build this beautiful garden of meaningful service in the world, we need to clear some brush for a second. Over the last five years, the Adventist church has invested considerable coin and time and press wrestling over the question of the ordination of those who stand behind pulpits. We have invested an extraordinary amount of energy on a theology of ordination for those that stand here. Much ink has been spilled also on the question of something called headship theology. That is trying to wrestle with, well, who is actually in charge? Who has the power? Who has the authority? Who's of the holy order that ought to be placed above everybody else? The theology of ordination for those who stand here, a theology of headship for those that are sort of above everything. Much time, money, treasure, all of it has been invested over the last five years. Now, of course, in this part of the world, this has been challenging for one reason, that equality of men and women and their being equally ordained in serving in this role, much of this world feels like the inequality in that respect is problematic. But I want to suggest to you something that might even be more damaging. When you spend a half a decade wrestling over the question of the incredible importance of the holy, powerful, called person who stands here. Those of us that represent a small fraction of a percentage point of all the Adventist believers, what happens to the sense of calling, of mission, of serious responsibility to the promptings of the Spirit for everybody else. It seems to me perhaps the greater inequality that we must address is not just between men and women who are here, 
but between those who stand here and the 99% everywhere else. I wonder what would it be like if we committed ourselves for the next five years not to headship theology, but to footship theology. Committed to the example of Jesus Christ, who knelt down on the ground and washed his disciples' feet and says to the whole church, you are to take on the attitude that I am showing you, one of service, where everyone is servant and there is only one head, and that is Christ. What if we dug down again and again into those critical words of Christ in Matthew 23, but you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you all are brothers and sisters. And do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father and he is in heaven. Nor are you to be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. The greatest among you will be your servant, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. If we are to be true to the first century New Testament vision, we must teach and we must practice the priesthood of all believers. The ordination of all believers. Take it or leave it. First, I think a sense of family. Second, I, I think a sense of service. So we've cleared that brush. Thank you for that. Let's plant a tree. I read recently uh, about a man by the name of Teddy Gross. He was walking in his city with his young daughter, Nora, just four years old. And they came across a homeless man. Little Nora saw him first. It's a chilly autumn day. He's leaning up against a building trying to stay warm, scrunched up newspapers in his shoes, those are his socks attempting to provide some insulation against the elements. And the little girl smiles at the man, and he smiles back. And then Gross says his daughter tugs on his coat and says, Daddy, Daddy, look, look, can we take him home? When I read this story, two truths hit me. Number one, that's the work of the Christian church in a single question. Can we take the hungry home? Can we take the thirsty home? Can we take the one in prison? Can we take the one who is lonely, not only home in heaven one day, but how is it that we are creating home for those who feel homeless in this world. That little girl's question summed it up. She wanted to make a difference. She had a gift. She had a home. She had something to give. In her little heart, she was a priest. She wanted to do something about suffering in the world. But the second lesson of that little story for me is I think that her question captures the heart of many in the young and emerging generations in our midst. They want to make a difference. They wish to change the world. They want the church, if the church is willing, 
to participate in alleviating suffering, to participate in bringing men and women and boys and girls home who are in the cracks and the crevices of life. A church that's responsive. As I was writing this sermon in the middle of the week, my iPhone alerted me to the presence of a new email, and I usually try to avoid those distractions, but this time I picked up the phone and discovered uh, it was uh, an email from Marcy Knoft, who is principal at Lincoln High School here in our community. And I want to invite Marcy to come up because I would like her to describe to you what she told me in this email. I have had the blessing and the privilege to work at Lincoln High School for the last 15 years. Lincoln is a small school. It's not a traditional high school, and it's located right downtown, for those of you that don't know, on Chestnut Street, right off of Chestnut Street between 3rd and 4th. We have an amazing staff. We serve about 180 students. Most of those students come from backgrounds of poverty. Over 80% of them are living in poverty, and most of them have come from very trying home lives and situations. Um, last Sabbath, when I got home from church, I had a text from one of my, the teachers at the building that I work in. She sent me a picture um, of a family, and she said, isn't this one of our Lincoln parents? And in doing a little investigating, it was then that I found out that last Friday night, as many of you know, a very senseless tragedy happened less than two and a half blocks from Lincoln High School, where somebody drove by in a car and shot and killed two people in their front yard. One of those people, Jeanette Rojas, was the parent of one of our Lincoln students. Her son was in the home at the time and ran outside when he heard the gunshots and screams, and I learned from a neighbor that he was actually holding his mom as she passed away. They have two other children. Um, one of them is a middle school student. She's 14. The other one is an elementary age student, and she's 10. The man that died also went to Lincoln over 20 years ago, and his daughter, 19, was also a Lincoln student in the past. So Shelly and I, she's our intervention specialist, went immediately and tried to connect with the family, took them grocery gift cards to help with expenses of family coming into town. And then on Thursday afternoon, we hosted a car wash over at O'Reilly's for three and a half hours. We washed cars alongside community members and family members in order to raise money to help with the cost of the funerals for both of the, the individuals. Hmm. So I'm breaking a few church, church rules here right now. Pastor Henning is going to um, call me on this. But uh, this is the bucket we use at our house to wash cars. We need to make a difference in the life of this family. Friends, Stay up here for a second, Marcy. Our young people don't want to have a take-it-or-leave-it attitude about the church. But in their minds, they have associated too often what we do here as playing church when there is real ministry that needs to happen in the world. I wonder what would it be like in the days ahead in this congregation if we had more and more moments that were unscripted, unplanned, 
where we understood what real needs were in the community. And this community of worship became a community of ministry as well. So this bucket here is going to sit right here. If, you, if you'd like to drop in a pledge or, or some coin, just write the word Lincoln. But this is a community. This is a family in great pain. And we're in the pain alleviation business. That's what we do. And Marcy and I and some of the other leaders are going to be talking about some more extended ways that we can bless students in her school who go home and have nothing to eat at night. Who go home and have nothing to eat at night. Marcy, thank you for uh, helping us this morning. So it seems to me if we are going to combat the epidemic of dispassionate interest in the church, particularly on part of our young people, first, we've got to be great family to one another. Second, we have to be a priesthood of all believers, encouraging and stimulating and focusing on making a real difference in our community and around the world. A third identity that we find in the New Testament text, they were to become athletes, athletes. And of course, now I rip from the metaphor of the Apostle Paul. He writes to Timothy for physical training. Physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things holding promise both for the present life and the life to come. Eugene Peterson translates the text this way, exercise daily in God. No spiritual flabbiness, please. Workouts in the gymnasium are useful, but a disciplined life in God is far more so, making you fit both today and forever. You can count on this. Take it to heart. This is why we've thrown ourselves into this venture so totally. The church community in the first century was serious about spiritual exercise, about growing through the teaching of the apostles in real godliness based on the life of Jesus. Paul writes to Timothy, hold on to the pattern of wholesome teaching you learned from me a pattern shaped by the faith and love that you have in Christ Jesus. Preach the Word of God. Be prepared. Whether the time is favorable or not, patiently correct, rebuke, and encourage your people with good teaching. And the signature statement about the experience of those in the first century, Acts 2, they, the church, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They were serious about becoming spiritual athletes. So, I hold in my hand my foundation. From the age of three to 23, I grew up as a member 
of the Foster Memorial Seventh-day Adventist Church in Asheville, North Carolina. They are nestled in the Appalachian Mountains. I have to admit, I had a great church experience growing up. I have very positive memories. First, it was family. We ate together and played together and waded in rivers and the mountains and went rafting and did all kinds of things. I, I, I actually wrote sermons for a week this summer in one of the classrooms in the church, and uh, it felt like home. The church, interestingly, just went through some renovations, and uh, I wanted one of the bricks from the original structure, and so here it is. You should have seen what the TSA thought of this, bring it back on the airplane. <laughs> It's a bit of a weapon. <laughs> but I sat there working on sermons, and all the memories came back of a local church that was family. I also, as I, I looked around, I thought about a, a sense of priesthood of all believers in real ministry in the community, a community services center similar to our Sunbridge a church very active in the world, and I found that I kept being interrupted as I was writing sermons just a few weeks ago because the church is full all week with groups from the community. There's a support group for women. There's a, another group where uh, those that have had endured neurological injuries meet for recovery. I walked around that church, and almost every Sabbath school had a, a second sign on it that was quite permanent, that was some aspect of the community that was using the church for healing, for recovery, for some positive recreational purpose. The church just teeming in a sense that we are all in making a difference in the community. But growing up in that church was not just family, and it wasn't simply service. That was my spiritual gymnasium. The Bryan family always, without fail, Second row on the left. And as much as my brothers and I tried to change that equation, there was no budging. That's where we sat. I calculated probably nearly a thousand sermons that I heard from that pulpit. Fantastic sermons from Pastor Bill Ambler and Pastor Roy Cawhorn and Pastor Albert Ellis and Pastor Dwight Herod. Probably nearly a, a thousand Sabbath schools my brothers and I learned in from crater roll to kindergarten, primary juniors, early teen youth, all the way up. And it struck me, I can't remember any particular sermon. I can't bring to mind any particular Sabbath school class at this point in my life. But there are a few foundational things that I can look back to. I gained confidence in a good God. I gained rock-solid conviction about the integrity and the beauty of these scriptures. I gained a sense that the grace of Jesus Christ is true. And I gained an imagination for what it would be like to attempt to live out the rich vision that Jesus has for the church in my life and in my community. I look back, and this is, in many ways, my foundation. Do we want to go to war against take it or leave it? Let's be incredible family. Let us serve our community as a priesthood 
of all believers. And let us open our minds to the rich teachings of the Scriptures. This is the church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it.